Good morning, New Vine. It's great to be with you today. I hope that you are doing well. Hey, a uh, big shout out if you are visiting with us online uh, this morning. We're really glad that you are with us. Uh, my name is Isaac. I am uh, lucky enough to be on staff here. I oversee our youth and our young adults uh, stuff here at New Vine. And today I am uh, continuing our series one. If you missed it last week, really kicked off uh, this one series that will see us work through a number of different teachings and themes from throughout the Bible that really focus in on unity and oneness. Uh, Not just focusing in on unity within the church, but also looking uh, at the reason we are unified, looking at the one, the one who is Christ. Now, today we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about marriage. And you don't get too far in to the Bible before you come across this passage in Genesis 2, uh, talking about one flesh. If you've got a Bible, Genesis 2, verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Well, today's topic of marriage, uh, first I just want to say is a really important one, whether you are married or not. Uh, If you are sitting here this morning married, I hope that what we read through in some way strengthens your marriage, uh, that in some way it gives you a renewed perspective of how much God values marriage, but also how much he values the church. Uh, In contrast to that, maybe you're joining us this morning unmarried. Maybe you're still waiting for God to bring the right person into your life. Maybe you're sitting here today having experienced the pain of losing someone that you loved so dearly. Maybe you are with us today having experienced the pain of divorce. And I want you to know this morning that I am not naive to those situations whilst I and maybe our church family may not be able to understand fully the situation that you have been in or are currently facing. We want you to know that we are standing with you believing that God can break through in miraculous ways, that by his spirit we can experience healing. Uh, We can experience a healing we never thought possible, a peace that we never thought possible. And just please know that nothing that I speak into Uh, this morning around marriage is intended to be insensitive or cause you to experience hurt when it comes to this topic. In fact, this morning, uh, as we talk about marriage, uh, the passages that we are looking at, I believe, teach us far more about the character of God and actually his heart for the church than they do teach us directly about marriage. But before we get any further, I'm going to pray. But as we do, as, as we begin our time with prayer, if this morning there is an area uh, that you need God to be at work in, whether that is uh, within your marriage, whether for you that is the desire to be married, maybe for you it's a healing process from um, the breakdown of a marriage, I just want to invite you to, if you're willing, just stand with me as we pray. Well, Father, I thank you that you are good I thank you for your church. Your word refers to the church as your bride and what a blessing it is for us to be a part of your church. God, we thank you for marriage. Uh, And this morning, above everything else, we commit ourselves to you. 
We bring before you our joys and our hurts, knowing that you care about all of it. God, we just ask you this morning that you would be at work in each and every situation we face, whether that be great or, if we're honest, really difficult. God, we invite you to speak to us this morning. We open our hearts to what it is you want to say to us, how it is you want to work through us. Amen. Hey, uh, well, whether you're married or not, I've got some questions for you this morning. First is this. When you were first married, or if you would like to be married, how many of you have a goal to commit adultery? I'm assuming not many. How many of you plan on becoming addicted to pornography? Why don't we lower the bar a little? How many of you plan on having an emotional affair? Not, not a physical one, nothing physical going on. You're just giving your heart to someone else. All right, what about no affair at all? There's, there's no other people involved. But how many of you plan on checking out emotionally, removing yourself emotionally from his or her partner? Well, I'm going to assume this morning that none of you threw your hand up for any of those answers, which is great. But interestingly, statistics would say that 50, maybe even 75% of you would do at least one or more of those things in your marriage. And sadly, for you and I, being a part of New Vine, or any church for that matter, declaring to follow Jesus, doesn't change that statistic a whole lot. It's crazy. No one sets out to do these things. No one is standing there on their wedding day with a plan brewing away in the back of their mind on how they might one day destroy or at very least devastate their marriage. Yet it seems to happen all the time. Now I'm aware there's a whole bunch of reasons that these things happen. But all of those reasons aside, what I simply want to suggest this morning is that in any of those situations, there is a disunity present. There is a disunity between a husband and a wife, but maybe more importantly, there's a disunity between that person and Christ. A separation and a distancing between you and what it is God desires for you. I find it hard to believe that someone choosing to commit adultery did so whilst continuing to invest in their marriage the way they should. And I find it even harder to believe that they were investing in their relationship with Christ because it's against the very heart of God. Unity, a unity within marriage, is incredibly important to God. So today we're going to be looking at marriage through this lens. We're going to do two things. First, we're going to try and unpack what passages like the one we've just read, Genesis 24, teach us about God and his love for the church. I see passages like this were never intended to just be read and left at face value. Uh, and if we dive a little deeper um, into the uh, context of passages like this, we uncover some incredible, incredibly powerful images of God's heart for humanity and his desire to be in relationship with us. And secondly, we're going to look uh, at how it is passages like this speak into our context today. 
how, how they speak into our marriages and what it is Christ might be calling us to do in light of that. So jumping back into Genesis, that verse uh, 24 again. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is a great little verse that gets recited a whole lot. If uh, you've been to weddings at any point, I am sure you've uh, heard this verse mentioned a few times. And it also sort of wraps up Genesis 1 and 2, which we would often refer to as the creation story. Um, If you've spent any time at church or in Sunday school, I wouldn't mind betting you've probably read Genesis 1 and maybe even Genesis chapter 2. Um, But Genesis 1 begins with in the beginning and followed by God speaking into existence life really as we know it. Chapter 2 pretty much retells this story. It's not uh, identical, it's not in the same order, but more than much, much the same sort of retells that story of creation. But chapter 2 finishes with a far more in-depth telling of how it was man was created and woman created and marriage. Uh, Now whilst we could just read this verse and sort of walk away from it saying, okay, man leaves family, he gets married, needs to commit himself to his wife. End of sermon. Don't get me wrong, that's a great starting point, and I'm sure a whole bunch of you, they're going, oh yeah, a five-minute sermon, I'm up for that. But it's a long way from what was intended to be the finishing point, and it's certainly not meant to be the high point of the creation story. In fact, this verse is sort of seen uh, as a bit of an add-on, sort of the author adding his two cents at the end. Most of chapters 1 and 2 were written in third person and in verse 24 the author sort of uh, rears his head and uh, as if the creation story preludes his statement of being like and in light of all of this that's why our husband leaves his sort of thing. It's like your granddad telling you like this 10 minute story and finishing with and that's why Tomato sauce is better than barbecue. Sort of a a little bit that you take away, but it's a very small ending to a much bigger story. Uh, Now we're going to unpack this creation story a little bit more so that we are led into that verse. But uh, you, uh, you need to hear me out here. We're not going to be reading Genesis from a literal perspective, um, nor do I believe that it was meant to be read from one. Now, I know a few of you are squirming in your seats as I say this, uh, but please just hear me out. Hopefully by the end of this, you will see uh, a bigger picture of Christ's heart for unity that is evident when we read it through the lens it was written in. Uh, when it comes to this, uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says this uh, when we read, of reading Genesis. These texts shouldn't be removed from their ancient context and read as if they refer to the process of cosmic or human origins in our 21st century scientific terms. They speak in terms of an ancient Near Eastern perception of the world and need to be interpreted within that setting. When we discern the meaning of the texts in their ancient context, we find that they constitute a worldview statement about God and his relationship to the world, about humans and their relationship to God and the world. This basic worldview statement transcends its ancient culture and commands the attention of God's people in all places at 
all times. In essence, he's saying Genesis wasn't written for, from our understanding of science. In fact, Genesis wasn't written uh, with any reference point to our culture or even our language for that matter. It was written to be read by an audience that existed some two and a half thousand years ago. So as we read through this, I need you to step back two and a half thousand years with me and try and place yourself in this story. So I need you to uh, imagine that your current understanding of creation is that it is a result of this epic battle that went on between Greek gods. And all of a sudden you pick up Genesis and read of Yahweh, a God with no rivals, a God who seemingly just speaks reality into being, a God who is painted as this royal artist, not some bloodthirsty warlord going to battle with others. Your current understanding of human existence is that you were created from dirt uh, by the gods, really just to be their slaves. And then again, you read Genesis and you read of this God who created you in his image. And he places you in this perfect garden and says, hey, you are in charge of this. Like This is yours to look after and live in. But more importantly, I am living here with you. I will be here with you. And then you read on and this God doesn't want you to be alone. Uh, you, Adam, uh, is, is how we read it. We read this as Adam and therefore just associate Adam to be a man. But this word Adam more so really just means humanity. Uh, God sees humanity, he sees Adam and says, it is not good for the human to be alone. I will make an Aza is the word used. Um, bit of a side note, this word Aza is often translated as helper. And sadly, can sometimes result in us sort of uh, having a bit of a patronizing attitude towards how we interpret it. Um, however, this word Aza is more accurately conveyed by the word deliverer. Um, and this same word is used most often to describe Yahweh throughout scripture. Um, so there you go. Quick side note for you, uh, ladies, if you are watching, if someone has ever tried to tell you that men were first because they're more important and that you're there because they needed a helper, just remind them that you and God are both referred to as Aza and God is never referred to as Adam. So there, that's a freebie for you, but I'm getting distracted. The point of unpacking this is to remind you that before you were created for marriage, you were created for a relationship with Christ. You were created to be unified with Christ. Now, you might be sitting there wondering why we're looking at the creation story when today's passage is around marriage. Well, if you have been around church any period of time like I have, you've probably come to uh, Genesis 1 and 2 with a general understanding and belief that God created the world and that that God deeply cares about you and desires to be in relationship with you, which is great. But it can also mean we skim over these passages and hone in on the aspect uh, of this passage that is around marriage because it's relevant for us and where we're at. But through the example of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, we come face to face with the calling God has placed upon all humans to pursue oneness with him 
and pursue oneness with others. God means for humanity to be family and marriage is not the only way we find ourselves in family. It is just how the author of Genesis uh, points out this important theme of unity that carries throughout the Bible. Marriage creates these small family units and God's ideal for those family units uh, which compromise nations to ultimately become this giant family united under Christ that spans nations and generations and ethnicities and time and space. So when we read of this marriage relationship and God's desire for us to be unified, Christ is calling us as Christians to have the same desire to be unified in all of our relationships, not just marriage. That in all relationships we would desire to express his love, his grace, his care to everyone in his family and actually everyone in humanity. And now, now I'll start in a roundabout way. We've sort of unpacked this one flesh passage. Um, it is just as much a picture of God's desire for humanity as it is marriage. We are going to look um, at another passage that seems to speak a little more directly into marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, we see the Apostle Paul refer back to this one flesh uh, idea that we read of in Genesis. If you've got your Bibles with me, uh, please open to Ephesians 5, 21. This is again a, a pretty well-known passage. It's called Instructions for Christian Households. Uh, Apostle Paul says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Uh, now, there's a whole bunch of content here. In fact, there's like an entire sermon series here with a whole bunch of complexities that we're not going to get into today. However, I want us to, to hone in on just one little phrase we find in verse 25. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul is writing here at a point in history where men held 100% of the power. Um, in married life, in family life, men called the shots. Now they decided if change was going to come and wives uh, really were just sort of along for the ride. Now Paul does something a bit sneaky here. He doesn't speak into that directly. Instead, he says this, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, and today, both as men and women, uh, I want us to take this on board. Paul doesn't speak into the power and the might of Christ. 
Instead, he makes reference to the way that Christ gave up power and position to become a servant. He talks about the way Christ threw aside cultural expectations of the time. He, he didn't come as this warrior swinging a sword, but instead he came and he cared for the poor. He healed the sick. He sat with lepers. He didn't come barking orders and building an army. Instead, he washed the feet of those that followed him and ultimately gave up his life so that others may find life. And Paul here is using this relationship between Christ and the church as the perfect basis for marriage. A marriage not based on power and authority, but a marriage centered around giving and sacrifice. And a marriage like this doesn't happen accidentally. Uh, if you were with us last week, you heard Reedy share that by default, we are selfish. And without being aware of our selfishness and trying to work on it, it'll no doubt rear its head in our marriages. So as we wrap up, I just want to leave us with four brief but very practical steps that will hopefully help us move forwards in our marriage, uh, see unity grow within our marriage, and ultimately see our marriages reflect Christ's love for his church. Um, a number of these thoughts have come from a book called From This Day Forward, written by a, a pastor named Craig Groeschel. It's a good book. I encourage you to have a read. First is this. Oh, sorry, I should say as well. Yes, they come from this book, but they are also very, very uh, simple observations of how it is Jesus and the disciples, Christ and his bride, spent time together. How it is they prayed for the church, prayed for their marriage as such. So first, pray together. Jesus spent a lot of time praying for the church. The disciples spent a lot of time praying for the church. We should be praying for our marriages. And why wouldn't we do that together as husband and wife? Here's a couple of thoughts why. It's really hard to pray with someone that you're mad at. So if you're praying together every day, you've probably got to deal with any sort of tension between you. It's really hard to pray with someone you're mad at. Second, it's really hard to divorce someone that you are praying with. And thirdly, it's really difficult to have an affair or end up with an addiction to pornography. When you are in a marriage that together you are daily focusing and seeking God together. So firstly, pray together. Second, read God's word together. The Bible is a life giving book. And we sit here as a church together and say, yeah, it's really important for us to open God's word. Do we have that same attitude in our own expressions of family? Within our own family units, within our own marriages, do we still have that same attitude that says, no, no, we need to read God's word together. We need to have a marriage that is built upon us opening God's word inviting him to speak to us and allowing it to shape our lives. Read God's word together. Third, worship together. Worship together. Serve God together. One of the best parts of my marriage um, is watching my lovely wife, Jess, 
at youth. Jess and I have been involved with uh, DIG here, our youth program, for about 10 years. And I love seeing Jess serve God here. I love seeing Jess invest in our youth and is one of the best parts of our marriage, seeing your spouse invest their time into something of eternal value is hands down one of the best experiences ever and doing it together is even better. So worship together, serve God together. And lastly, prepare for the future together. Now when I say this, most of you are probably thinking preparing so that you have some sort of financial security for the last years on earth, but I don't mean that at all. I'm talking about preparing for eternity. As a couple, are you investing in one another for the purpose of eternity? Is your biggest desire for your spouse that one day God says to them, well done, good and faithful servant? That is a future worth investing in. And I love my wife, Jess, and I will do all that I can to care for her and protect her whilst here on earth. But more than that, I want to know that the time she spent here on earth prepared her for heaven. That it prepared her for heaven that one day God would say, Jess, my daughter, well done. Well done. I'm so proud of you. So marriage is a gift from God. And it's a beautiful gift. And it's something that we should be investing in. It's a beautiful image of Christ's heart for the church. And I hope that today... Something that has been shared has caused you to be encouraged to invest in your own marriage. Encouraged to invest in the church. Invest in the bride of Christ. And I hope that all those things, above all those things, you walk away with a greater understanding of Christ's desire to be one with you. That is the most important, that you were firstly created to be in relationship with him, to be unified with Christ. If you can uh, have that fall number one priority, your relationship with others, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your kids will all benefit from those things. It's been great sharing with you. God bless you.